Hi friends, my name is Jess Piper and this is the Dirt Road Democrat. On this episode, I'll be talking to Professor Josh Cowan about third-party vendors and school privatization. This show is brought to you by the Heartland Pod and our Patreon supporters. To learn more and join us, go to heartlandpod.com and click the Patreon link to get signed up to support this show and others in the Heartland Pod family to get bonus content and special access for events. You can follow me on social media. On Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, I'm Piper from Missouri. On TikTok, you can find me at Just Piper Mo. And be sure to follow the Heartland Pod on all accounts. I'm so glad you have joined me for another episode of the Dirt Road Democrat. And today I'm having another special guest. And actually, he's gotten to be a friend, a Twitter friend, an online friend. But he's doing great work in the process of talking about school privatization, what's going on, what's happening in red states, what's happening in states like his in Michigan, and the fight to keep schools public. His name is Joshua Cowan. He's a professor of educational policy. Uh, He was a founding director and co-director of Educational Policy Innovation Collaborative, and his current research focuses on teacher quality, student and teacher mobility, and evaluations of state and local education programs. Um, He's been in scholarly journals and briefs and he's been all over the news uh, lately, you know, talking about this push to privatize education. I had Josh back on today to talk about something that was a little confusing to me, I think, and that's uh, the vendors that private schools are using, these third-party vendors that um, are able to kind of make money hand over the fist um, with your state dollars. So uh, settle in, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Well, hello. Thank you for joining me again, Josh. It's so good to see you. Good to see you, too. Good. So we spoke a couple months ago about school privatization and, you know, um, I talk about it a lot. You talk about it a lot. We're Twitter friends. (laughs) So I follow you. So I see um, all of your tweets whenever, you know, you're talking about school privatization. Um, So tell me what you've been up to in the last few months and kind of uh, what you're seeing with school privatization. And then I really want to focus on something that I didn't think that much about until I started reading your tweets, and that's about the vendors that these yeah. these folks are using. But tell us, um, like, what you're seeing across the states with school privatization. Sure. Yeah. So um, thanks again for having me. I um, it's been it's been something of an exhausting, you know, five months. I think, um, and I can't imagine for folks who are in you know state legislatures um, trying to deal with this stuff, this ongoing kind of absolute rush of legislation that's that's uh, you know it coming at them warp speed and, and um, really from outside of um, their own borders as as you know um so here I am in Michigan and um you know I've been as I've said many times publicly I've been studying vouchers and writing about vouchers and talking about school choice more generally for years and years but it's really only been in the last year um, since this big crush of legislation has come that I've, um, you know, taken on something of a public voice. And what prompted that, and this gets to your specific question about the last few months, is honestly, I got a, a call about 15 months ago now from from NBC News asking me to talk about the voucher push in my own home state, which which ultimately failed, uh, thank the Lord. But since then, it's been almost every 
I don't know, almost every five, six weeks, it feels like there's like a new piece of legislation in a new state that's come up. And they all sort of have a lot of similarities. In many cases, it's clear that the drafters or the legislation are the same. And they've just sort of imported language into us as like a state template. Um, so what I've been doing the last couple months, at least since we spoke, is just sort of watching all of this um, kind of noticing some of the specifics that, you know, that are occurring in each state some of the commonalities, some of the differences. Um, and then like everybody else, just kind of uh, watching and waiting to see what individual legislatures decide. And we've seen some uh, like in Iowa in January, just get absolutely rammed through in a 24 hours of debate. Uh, we've seen, you know, just in the last few days, um, the, the, the school voucher bill go down in Texas, although it sounds like they're going to call a special session just to try to get that revived um arkansas uh dear down near near your neck of the woods had this bill passed i think right around the time we, we last spoke in march um i like to note uh that within 12 hours a child labor uh rollback on protections was signed and then uh, that's so hours weird late, right 12 hours later so was school <laughs> vouchers so we have to i think of these things as linked um both in the legislative calendar and conceptually but that bill has run into some um some legal problems in the last couple of weeks yep. mostly as i understand it just because of of this issue of being poorly drafted it, it turns out when you when you import cookie cutter legislation nationally into into individual states sometimes you screw up some of the details and that sounds to that seems to be what what's going on down there i'm not going to keep my fingers crossed and 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 hope that whole thing uh gets overturned but it has been paused uh in arkansas and that's just been the last few days so it has and you said something about um these these uh, pushes for legislation being from outside of the state. And so when I look at what happened in Missouri, and we passed a voucher scheme, and we know that two thirds of the people who received vouchers were already in private schools. So right. it seems like we're just subsidizing folks who already had their kids in, in private schools. But can you tell me this out of state thing, if, if you looked at the legislation in Missouri, you'd say, oh, well, um, you know, Ben Baker proposed this and, um, you know, you could start looking at the folks who we think are responsible for it. I think that you're right about it being out of state because Ben Baker was called to task. He's a Missouri legislator. He was called to task to talk about his bill and um, define some of the pieces that were a little fuzzy and he couldn't do it, Josh. Like it looked, when you watch the video of him doing it, it looked like he was reading the bill for the first time. So who is doing this? Who is pushing these? Yeah, I, I um, without being able to speak specifically to the Ben Baker example, I, just more generally, um, there are a number of groups, uh, the American Federation for Children's, the big one this cycle, that's a, a uh, 501c4 advocacy organization founded by Betsy DeVos. Uh, they've made kind of common costs with a number of of, of, eight, of groups funded by Charles Koch and others. And then you have these sort of regional folks, Herzog in your state, um, a number of oil and gas billionaires in Texas that sort of they, there's always a local kind of or a regional kind of sponsor too. Um, but the but the big national groups would be the American Federation for Children, the Heritage Foundation, uh, the Coke, uh, a number of Coke network groups like uh, there's there's one called Yes Every Kid, Stand Together, Americans for Prosperity. I mean, they all have these fun sounding <laughs> names, but they sound great. <laughs> right. I mean, the, the, the major point is that there's a. Um, a fairly far right 
network of, of organizations. Um, uh, there's an author, Ann Nelson from New Republic and others that's written whole books on this. Jane Mayer from the New Yorker has also written about this. There are a number of organizations with, with strong ties to um, kind of libertarian market oriented uh, philosophies funded by the DeVosses and the Kochs, the two big players. The other thing to watch here is um, a number are kind of walking awfully close to uh, um, parroting uh, or doing some sort of background kind of uh, public support for DeSantis, Ron DeSantis issues. Uh, the most, the most uh, recent example of that is sort of backing up uh, DeSantis on all this book ban stuff. So you, you probably remember that DeSantis is really the book banner in chief when it comes mm-hmm. to, uh, you know, starting this book banning movement. And in the lead up to his announcement last week, where he called book banning a hoax, some um, Heritage Foundation, some of these other groups that are behind these voucher pushes, kind of came out really hard saying no 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 it's not a ban and and there's been it that's been exaggerated and kind of doing a little bit of the, the water carrying on that so again these are fairly tightly coupled uh network of of individuals of very wealthy folks um and then your usual suspects on kind of the the, the right in terms of the politics piece as far as i know so what you're saying, what it sounds like you're saying is that book banning and school privatization are going hand in hand. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not an accident that, you know, the two big legislative accomplishments in Florida are expanding uh, the, the pre-existing voucher program into this, the nation's largest voucher program this just this March, and then this big book ban push. And then all of the uh, attendant organizations that support both are are behind both. It's part of book ban, but also I think of book bans as, as a specific and particularly well-publicized version of this larger push toward, you know, anti-DEI, the so-called war on woke, whatever that means, uh, anti-LGBTQ things. And and it's on the LGBTQ issues piece that you really see the voucher link directly um, because so many of the uh, school privatization efforts direct tax dollars to schools that overtly discriminate against LGBTQ kids and not just LGBTQ kids, but their families. And so we've, we've seen even before this latest push for, for school privatization, you've seen schools in Florida, schools in Indiana, make national news for expelling gay children. Um, Wisconsin too, the schools have gotten very good at avoiding state law against discrimination um, by that's a sort of a whole other topic, but what they do is they, it turns out that some of these laws have uh, prohibitions against discrimination on admission, but not against expulsion. So what they do is they admit whoever, and then they'll expel them um, when they come out or when they find out something more about their family. So all these things go hand in hand. Absolutely. So we know why uh, privatization is a push from uh, folks like the Coke Network, folks like Betsy DeVos, because it seems to be a really big line item in most state budgets. And if you can get your hands on that, you've got billions of dollars, you know. Um, Why do you think they added um, anti-LGBTQ? Because there's no money in discriminating, you know, against a few kids or parents. I, it, my governor here says bigotry is bad for business, and I'm not a, an economist uh, or business leader by training, but I think that's probably l- roughly right, that, that it's not great business. I mean, look at what's happening. Almost every day in the last couple of weeks, we've seen 
um, news, not in you know political outlets, but like business magazines uh, talking about just the devastating economic cost to DeSantis's war on Disney down down in in Florida, which right. is directly tied to LGBTQ stuff issues. Mm-hmm. Um, they've cost jobs, a whole uh, linked deals like real estate uh, contracts that have already been signed are, are in jeopardy now because of just this this push against um against disney so i'm not sure that has anything to do with the sound economy and i don't think it's consistent with you know necessarily with 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 libertarian principles as i understand it um but that the 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 link to this kind of far right theocracy that some of these organizations are also part of as i think where where it come comes in i mean you know in my state it wasn't just anti-lgbtq efforts that they raised i mean literally the school privatization effort here, um, funded by the DeVos organization, was ran out of the same office um, over the last 12 months as the push to keep reproductive rights off the uh, ballot and off our constitution. Uh, both failed, vouchers and the effort to keep reproductive freedom away from our constitution. It's now enshrined in our constitution. But point is, I mean, there, there are a number of sort of pure libertarians that would call restrictions on reproductive rights anti-freedom too and i that's how i understand it and i think you do too but um you know the far-right religious fundamentalism christian nationalism uh covers up a lot of hypocrisy let's just leave it at that it does there's this huge intersectionality of all of these issues coming together and i think that's why it's confusing for people because when you're talking about school privatization, you're also talking about all of these other issues that are seemingly unrelated. There was a huge push in Missouri this year uh, against, you know, woke ideology, but also like you were talking about DEI um, and you work at a university. What does DEI do at a university and can you uh, define it for us? It's a a, a, a good question. Um, And I'm actually uh, in my day job, I'm, I'm one of our representatives in our college for our uh, committee on equity and inclusion this this year, and all, all it really means is uh, is exactly what it sounds like. It makes sure that that issues of equity and inclusion that that includes race, but it also includes gender, it includes um, sexuality, it includes uh, national origin. You know, I mean, basically, it's it's um, making sure there's a level playing field in in uh, as the administration, the organization you're in, in my case, it's a university, but, you know, businesses run DEI initiatives too. And it just simply means, you know, you treat your employees fairly. Um, those that get promoted, get promoted on their merits. Uh, um, you, and then, and, you know, there are certain particular sensitivities around um, at universities around sort of interaction with students, for example, um, uh, people that are, uh, you know, have a lower, uh, professional rank than you and that sort of thing but mm-hmm. that exists in in the corporate world too so I, I mean at the end of the day dei is a broad framework for thinking about just how to treat people fairly um and because uh we've had our country's history is just so full of um horrible injustices on the basis of race on the basis of gender sometimes treating people fairly means paying a little extra attention to fairly on the basis of race or fairly on the basis of gender sometimes that happens and um you know i i i think 
trying to look at the world in a, in a way that's consistent with justice uh, means you have to kind of pay attention to those issues sometimes. And, that, and that's all DEI means, as I understand it. Um, but, you know, clearly uh, others have a more hostile view. <laughs> yeah, we had a couple of lawmakers who were saying that, you know, fewer white man white men can get into, you know, medical school and that sort of thing. Uh, the data didn't prove that. So I'm not exactly sure where they're finding these. I would say that um, people who have always been able to fall forward are now being held to a standard and uh, maybe not all of them are getting into the schools of their choice. Yeah, and I mean, as someone who identifies as a white Christian heterosexual male, I, you know, I, I I'm trying very hard on my, for my own part to kind of uh, recognize that the sometimes the margin of error, um, at least historically, has been larger for folks who look like me. To be perfectly candid, and <clears throat> there's nothing wrong with sort of acknowledging that and trying to build that kind of recognition into your into your own work and your sense of what the playing field should look like and your sense of justice and you, it's a learning it's a lifelong learning right like I don't claim to to uh, uh, have this all figured out myself but what I what I do think is that the hostility to incorporating that sense of justice and that sense of equity and that sense of inclusion I mean what's wrong with that word inclusion that's the I in DEI it just means you know um, that we're a big ten and and I it's very difficult to kind of get my head around the, uh, I mean, you, you, you get this a lot too, right? If you're on social media, like the absolute obsession that some of these people have with just um, excluding whole groups of people based on who they are, who they love, what they look like, what color their skin is. I mean, it's terrible. And I, um, you know, yes. I mean, it's, it, to me, it's why we need DEI is to just remember <laughs> that this, that, you know, so other people exist. It's <laughs> a really good way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. And I know every time someone is anti-DEI, that's my first question. Are you, what are you opposed to? Is it diversity? Is it equity or is it inclusion? And that sort of puts them in a space to think about, well, what I, what am I against? <laughs> right. So um, what I really wanted to talk yeah. to you about today was something that I'd never thought about. And it's that that way we know privatization makes money for for folks we know that you know taking public education and turning public dollars over into uh private hands you know is a big money maker yeah. but you've struck on something that i never thought about and that's third-party vendors and folks that are listening may have no idea what they're especially if you haven't been in education um what does a third-party vendor look like and what are you seeing with privatization and this use of vendors yeah, sure. So let me give you just a quick kind of general description and then try to explain what's going on on the, on the school privatization piece. So there are a lot of vendors in not just in public education, but in any sort of um, sector that that deals with with government, with public agencies. Right. So you you'll have um, third parties that might, for example, uh, run custodial services in state buildings. Uh, or uh, run the uh, trash pickup for a, a local government, for a local city, or um, in some cases, corrections, um, you know, prison work, for example, is is, a, is vended out to a third party. Uh, it, so the, there's nothing kind of particularly unique about a, a government, whether state or a district or a local a city, uh, signing a contract with a business or an outside party to provide a service that happens all the time. Uh, including in public education. Uh, what is different here 
and what is different even with the latest round of voucher bills or privatization efforts that did not exist at this level when I got into this sort of line of work 20 years ago is the use of these vendors to administer voucher funds at minimum on the money side. So basically they take the money from the state or they receive in Missouri, for example, you guys have a tax credit. They'll receive donations in lieu of what a particular citizen or, co or corporation owes the state in taxes. It, it has the same mathematical effect on the state budget, but that vendor will then hold the money and then distribute it as an educational expense on behalf of or 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 when the parent themselves do it. And there's some mechanical differences in how those all work that I'm happy to talk about. But at the end of the day, what we're talking about is a third a third party, as the, as the name implies, that that's neither governmental nor a parent, and and their job is to basically spend that money um, either either from the government or sort of through the tax code after the parent makes that makes that decision. And that is a fairly new phenomenon in the school privatization world. It's not new to this year, but what is new to this year is just the the use of these third parties in, in almost all of the new bills that are being passed that we've talked about uh, earlier in the last six months or so. Um, and and what's important, so they, they can be for-profit companies depending on the state, they can be local 501c3 organizations like in Missouri. Uh, the biggest vendor is affiliated with the Herzog Foundation, as it turns out. Um, <laughs> and uh, and and what they do is they just they there's different rules and, and limitations on what they can do. They can market themselves. They can market the programs to families. They can go out and basically solicit participants. And then the state is on the hook for that person's dollars. Um so there are different sort of nuances depending on the state, but the idea is that they are the administrator of the of the public dollars, and that in the in the public ed world, what we call it that's that's what we call a pass through, and, and states will use school districts as pass through sometimes to, uh, for example, um, run a tutoring program, run a dropout prevention program. In a number of states, including my own, we have what's called shared time, where the state will um, actually spend. Uh, provide some money to the districts. The districts will then partner with private schools, actually, um, for example, to, to provide a certain service or something. These things happen a fair amount. What, what is different is the use of is the use of these vendors as just third parties that are outside of the government structure. And um, you're right that some of it is to make money, um, either for profit or for the organization that's running them. So you'll have some churches get together in Missouri, for example, and they'll run this and they'll take a little bit on the side. Usually it's capped at 10% that they can charge per student. Um, but the big issue, in my view, you know, um, is the reason that they do this is to avoid scrutiny. It's a lot easier to track dollars when it's being spent by a state agency or a school district than it is when it's being spent by a third party. Support this show and all of the work in the Heartland Pod universe by going to heartlandpod.com and clicking the Patreon link to sign up. Membership starts at $1 per month and goes up from there with extra shows and special access at the higher levels. Heartlandpod.com, click the Patreon link, or just go to Patreon and search for the Heartland Pod. No matter the level you choose, your membership helps us create these independent shows as we work together to change the conversation. And now back to the show. So this seems to go back to the fact that a lot of these schools um, that are receiving state vouchers don't have a lot 
of oversight, right? So can you tell me, like, um, for instance, a school district, what sort of oversight they would have that a public school district would have um, compared to what a private um, school district accepting state money has? Like, are they responsible for tests? Are they responsible for certified teachers? Are they responsible for following a curriculum? So what is what is the difference in the oversight between public well, in- and private? What you just described, those responsibilities, tests, teachers, and things like that, that that's actually very similar to what charter schools do mm-hmm. uh, as kind of a third party that's actually running the education. That's not the vendors in the private in the full out privatization. I think of charter schools as kind of partway through the full privatization spectrum where you go right. from like pub, traditional publics, then charters, and then full on privatization, which is what we're... But these vendors mostly just... Uh, in some cases, it's really hard to know what they do, honestly, to earn the money. They What they do is they exist to spend the tax dollars. Um, there there are so the, the largest national vendor is a group called Class Wallet. And, and they um, run a number of, of they'll have, a, they have apps, they have uh, other types of things that parents, the money goes into these accounts and parents can use them almost like a debit card. Uh, and then they get like a in class wallets case they get in Arizona, for example, they get a two and a half percent surcharge every time a parent spends something on an educational expense. Um, it's it's hard to other than just accounting for those expenses a little bit like a, a quick and budget, you know, like you might use to do your home finances. Other than that, it's not clear what those companies actually do. Um that's another distinction, actually, with the vendors we talked about earlier, where like a district might contract out with a, a, a an after school program to provide tutoring or provide, a, a, you know, like I say, in my state, we use it for dropout prevention sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it, that that clearly defined service is 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 enumerated. And that's the other piece of the oversight here. State each of the laws that have that have. Been created to enact vouchers do have some broad language about you know can't be fraud and the the state can audit the vendor and can audit the school and can audit the parents account but it's really really vague on what can actually happen um it's not and there my guess is there will be some lawsuit at some point about this actually in oklahoma uh last august there was a lawsuit on this class wallet vendor i mentioned um, for misappropriating COVID relief funds, it, it, it's not clear if that was the, the vendor's fault or if it was the state agency's fault. And there's a lot of legalities that kind of go with that. But generally speaking, um, to your original question, uh, p- public schools are guided by a number of federal regula- regulations and a number of state regulations um, that all go back to almost to the dollar you can track how public schools are spending that money it's just not at all the case uh in these in these vouchers um and certainly not the vote voucher programs that have vendors administering them so you mentioned arizona and i read and i can't i'll I'll have to link it in the bio but i i read somewhere that in arizona their voucher program was very much like a debit card and that people were very much misusing the funds that were coming to them and i think it's incredibly strange that um we see folks on the right who are pushing for school vouchers also very concerned about how people spend 
SNAP money, right? And so I couldn't figure out why they would allow a system that is rife with fraud with folks that are buying makeup and trampolines and <laughs> everything under the sun, um, how they are okay with with this happening. Yeah, I don't, I mean, there are a lot of inconsistency in the language and in the objectives, you know, you know, whether it's on the social stuff we talked about with like reproductive rights and LGBTQ rights, or here where you're talking about spending public dollars in an unaccountable way. Um, I, I think what it comes down to, honestly, is that, um, you know, economic conservatives, just mainstream economic conservatives are much more comfortable with, um, you know, um, uh, extraordinary permissiveness let's call it that with the way dollars are spent um and they will claim that markets will over time correct for fraud and abuse whether it's at the individual level or at the corporate level and you know part of just that's a long-term philosophical debate that we have uh in public life is you know to the, ex the extent to which it's the government's responsibility to watch out for fraud and abuse in the case of arizona they have tightened the that um oversight a little bit after national news was made on those exact issues you're talking about makeup cases yeah. big screen tvs trips <clears throat> to sea world and things they have tightened those it's not so much that they lowered the list of or, or, or reduced the list of allowable expenses what they what they've done is just create more oversight to check against those expenses and um you know that's another that's another job that they claim the vendor's supposed to do is 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 check for allowable expenses and every one of these pieces of legislation does have a list of things you can spend the money on mm -hmm. theoretically the vendor is supposed to check for that but it's it's not clear and you know honestly i don't know these groups uh, uh class wallet odyssey is another one that's that's bidding in arizona right now it, odyssey got the contract in iowa to administer uh, their voucher program uh, i've read the call for proposals in Arizona and in Iowa. They're very vague, very broad. They basically, um, they what they look like actually is just blank RFPs, <laughs> calls for proposals with some very bare details put in. So it's not clear how these are going to be evaluated or how the how the companies actually win these win these awards. Um, but even starting from the, the standpoint that there's nothing particularly wrong, you know, I, I don't know. I'm not aware of a case where one of these vendors, Odyssey or Class Wallet, has themselves um, been implicated in a substantial amount of fraud. The problem is that the is that you know individual uh, users of these programs might, and and uh, there's a wide range of good of good good faith to bad faith um, providers of the service at the back end and. The most common provider of that service is a private school, frankly. I mean, these these run the gamut from, you know, high quality, mission oriented, you know, real serious schools, private schools. I don't think they should be getting tax dollars, but they're doing good work. They mm -hmm. there are many of those that are receiving vouchers. And then there are many others that are, you know, just just um, what I call pop up or subprime schools that really have no business around educating kids and um, state law allows them to exist and, and they get these dollars. And so I, I tend to worry from the fraud piece. I tend to worry more about that side of things, yeah. um, at least until I give a reason. Um, I can say that the, the third party vendors are just doing what state law allows them to do. If that makes sense. Right. right? Like right. they're just they're just existing because they're allowed to exist. That's normal. Exactly. Have we 
in America, have we been in this place before where um, I know, you know, we've, we've privatized schools in Missouri, we give vouchers and there's no access for my child because we live in a rural place. There's no access for children who have disabilities or social emotional issues. But have we been here before? Because I don't remember being here before and I'm not exactly a spring chicken. So <laughs> I wonder, you know, if we haven't been here before, well, I'll, I'll let you answer that. And then I have another question for you. No, we haven't been here before. And th there okay. is a reason that the sort of education right right now is running all over the place, um, uh, doing some some at least some regional victory dances. And, and they've had some real success ramming these things through. A lot of it comes from just big dollar pushes. Nebraska just pushed through a voucher program after several months of debate or, or, or stalling on this. Uh, the DeVos organization has spent an enormous amount of money on state legislative races uh, just to get these things through. That happened in Iowa uh, that that came close to happening, but didn't happen in Texas. So I, I wouldn't call that this is not a grassroots organization that's just kind of sprung up uh, in the way that, say, uh, you know, civil rights or uh, other other real movements have um, have accomplished. But these big, big time kind of shadowy dark money billionaire groups have succeeded in a lot of places pushing this through in a way that they had not succeeded before and one of the reasons one of the things historically that has held back some of their success and still held back that success in texas the reason that their vouchers didn't pass the session in texas is exactly what you're describing um rural republicans actually have held the line on these issues um preventing vouchers from becoming law in some of these states, including Texas. And the reason is exactly what you're describing. There are no beneficiaries or for the, for uh, these rural Republicans districts. Um, and, you know, I'm not a political strategist, but how many folks get reelected voting against the largest employer in their districts, uh, yeah. usually public school districts. And for many of these, for many of these, um, for many of these representatives. So no is the answer this hasn't happened before it's it's um i do see all of this as part of that larger kind of culture war push i mean the book banning and the anti-lgbtq and all these other things uh, and let's not forget that it's it's been not not even a year uh, quite yet that uh, roe versus wade was overturned so all this stuff is going together and i think it's a mistake for folks like me um to focus so narrowly on on the mechanics of school privatization even though that's my expertise and not be tuned into this larger um, this larger sort of set of events that are going on, which, you know, I think it's all it all goes hand in hand. I, I totally agree. I see it all coming down uh, from the same folks, in fact. So if someone wanted to get involved, if somebody says, um, you know, I think public dollars should stay in public schools. Uh, my kid doesn't have access to public schools. Please don't defund my public schools. Is there something they should do? Is there something they can read? Is there, you know, do you have any um, point of action that folks can take to do something? Well, keep listening to this podcast for one thing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I'll be honest. I, um, I'm I'm not a community organizer, um, so, so I don't have a direct answer to that other than to say uh, contacting your representatives matters. It, it may not be determinative, meaning it, it may not stop the tide in your own state, but it gets noticed. And the reason that, you know, uh, um, 
vouchers took 24 hours to pass in Iowa in January and took a lot longer in other states is partly because a lot of the representatives, even those who ultimately voted for vouchers, um, got a lot of constituent feedback. And I think that that it's hard, I think, sometimes to remember that that stuff still matters. And um, I, I, that, I think that's across the board, right? It's not just on on privatization, but on all these issues that that matter to us. I think I am a big proponent of just civic participation in general, and I think people should do that. And that can get intimidating, but um, you know there are ways to make to make your voice heard on that. And it starts with exercising your right as a voter to um, to talk to the person who's supposed to represent you in the legislature. Exactly. And I have one more question for you. Yeah. Um, I, I talk a lot about red states because that's where I am. You know, we live yeah. under a super majority. Is this happening in other states where there is a Democratic majority? I know that we have a couple Democrats in our state that will consistently vote for choice or vote for the privatization of schools because, um, you know, there may be struggling schools in, you know, the cities um, and they're thinking about, you know, choice um, which I think just fund the school, right? <laughs> just fund the public school when people are like, what should we do? I don't know, fund them. Um, but, you know, is it just happening in places like mine or it, is this a national push? It's a national push. Uh, the greatest success has been in red states this cycle within the last few months. Um, but listen, I mean, one of the largest uh, voucher type programs would have passed in mine um, had the results of the November 2022 election gone in re Republicans way. And I live in a kind of a, what they call a purple state, right? A little red, a little, I have a, we have a democratic governor and, and, a, and right now a democratic legislature, but that's the first time that's happened in 40 years. Right. Um, Illinois has, has currently also a democratic governor, democratic legislature, but, um, that's also fairly recent and they had, uh, have actually a voucher program that's due to sunset. Um, a smaller voucher program. It's capped at seventy-five million, which isn't huge as these things go. Um, it, it's cap. It's due to sunset, and it sounds like it's not going to be renewed, um, mostly because of the makeup of the legislature and the governor's office. These are not just pushes happening in um, in exclusively red states. They've just had more success than them. And I will say, you know, to your to your larger point about Democrats and choice on the charter school side of things. The politics of school choice are very complicated. Most Democrats are flat out against vouchers. Uh, I think, you know, that there's some exceptions. The first voucher program in the country in 1990 was founded in Milwaukee and that the bill sponsor was a Democrat. Um, uh, so there are exceptions, but for the most part, that's a Republican effort. Charter schools are more complicated. Uh, charter schools in my state, for example, uh, half the kids in the city of Detroit go to a charter school. They're not, not the traditional district. Half the kids in the city of Flint, my district, most of those are students of color. Um, progressives and public school advocates, including myself, will note that some of that is because of three decades of neglect and underfunding, partly led by privatizers like Betsy DeVos. So some of this is making a foregone conclusion occur and then sort of stepping back and saying, look, uh, now Democrats support choice too. And I've been very clear both both privately and publicly that you know the charter schools in my state aren't going anywhere. We have 150,000 kids in them. So we have to build in structures of support and governance. And I want more transparency. I'm skeptical of the for-profit charter schools in my state, but I, at this point, when I was talking about doing away with them, uh, we, we have to serve those kids too. 
I just, what I worry about is, is this larger uh, push that brings in the, like kind of the, the, the theocracy, the anti-LGBTQ, um, the exclusion of children, vulnerable kids in communities in particular, at least, at least with charter schools, uh, that's against the law. Now that doesn't mean that it doesn't happen and it doesn't mean it doesn't happen in some public communities either, mm-hmm. but at least there's, there's what's against the law what takes the school privatization so much further is that the discrimination is allowed and is baked into these voucher programs in a way that it isn't in the other sectors. People are going to be people and there's going to be hate involved with some of their actions. But the difference is, do we, do we, do we point to that and say, that's not okay. We're going to, we're going to, uh, work on that. We're going to prosecute it. If need be, we're going to remove those dollars for those bad actors. Um, that's not what's happening with these privatization plans. In fact, uh, that's that's part of the point in some cases is is to allow these parents to move their kids to schools where where um, some kids are excluded, and and that is what I think we have to really fight against. Yeah, I mean, when they started, they were called segregation academies for a reason, right? That's right. <laughs> okay, so I lied. I have one more question for you. I just need a real. <laughs> I need a just tell me what's the point what's the point of public schools why should we have public schools in 2023 what's what's good about them public schools are community institutions and what that means to me is um they're part of our they're part of our lives that that they're part of our um there are neighbors there are our families, they're, um, they're parts of the place we decide to live in. And, um, and just the same as, as parks are, just the same as, um, you know, the, the, the city councils that we vote on, you know, the, I think if public schools didn't exist, democracy wouldn't exist. I firmly believe that. You need to have some general commitment to the idea of education as a community in the, however you define your community that you live in. And the best way to do that is um, through a public school community. And that's why I think, that's why I think we need them. And I, you know, I'm not, that's not a unique view of people for 150 years, going back to Horace Mann have said that public schools are integral to democracy, but in 2023, we have, you know, a third of the country doesn't think the current president won um, you know, we have to be very, very careful and and on guard about some very basic things like voting in our democracy. And I think that a lot of that starts with public education. And, it, it, you know, we either have a responsibility to each other or we don't. And if we think we do, um, then we have to see education as something that is community oriented. Um, and um, my kid and your kid are sort of equally important to this big experiment that we're in called called the United States. And we walk the walk on that by um, by maintaining public schools. Woo-hoo. <laughs> that was perfect. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm sorry I threw that you sure. I threw that at you at the end, but yeah. it's just so important, I think, because we've lost sight. And we talk about privatization. We talk about what's going on. We talk about fraud. But just to pull it back and say, why are we even doing this in the first place? It is about democracy. It is about community. It is about children. It is about America, right? Yeah. So, yeah, I appreciate you so much, Josh, for joining me again. Thank you for doing that rundown on, you know, third party vendors. And I hope to speak to you again sometime soon. Yeah, we'll we'll catch up and um, keep 
keep keep it up. I'm a, a huge fan and you inspire me every day. So thank you. Thank you. Dirt Road Democrat is brought to you by the Heartland Pod, a mid-map media production. Producers are Adam Summer, Rachel Parker, and Sean Dillon. Theme music by Adam Summer. Host, Jessica Piper. Learn more at heartlandpod.com. Thank you.